it's Monday, and that's what happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, and welcome to Monster Mondays. I am Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the weekly podcast Film Seizure that you can catch on Wednesdays at FilmSeizure.com or at a number of podcast providers online. It's been about 30 months since we've revisited the original Mummy series at Universal. 1940's The Mummy's Hand was not so much a sequel to The Mummy as much as it was a reinvention of a property that was successful for the studio earlier in the 30s. And much like last week's The Invisible Woman, The Mummy's Hand was a lighter take. Whereas 1932's The Mummy was atmospheric, eerie, and just generally aces, The Mummy's Hand had a much more adventurous feel to it. In fact, I almost go so far as to say that 1999's version of The Mummy borrowed most heavily from The Mummy's Hand than even the 1932 version of The Mummy. But in that movie, you had an archaeologist, Steve Banning, and his comedic relief sidekick, Babe Jensen, kind of down on their luck and needing funds for an expedition that would lead them to a discovery that was found uh, in a broken vase with hieroglyphics on the inside. They get funding from a stage magician named Silvani, and his daughter Marta joins the expedition when she believes that Steve and Babe are frauds. Of course, this all leads to some shenanigans with the mummy Karis and the high priest of Karnak, who protects and controls Karis. The movie ends with Steve and Babe defeating the high priest and his assistant and the setting of Karis on fire, and the adventurers return to the United States with the treasure of the tomb of Ananka, which uh, basically is what Karis is there to protect. And of course, Steve and Marta end up uh, getting married and starting a family and all of that. Now, That movie was a direct result of something I kind of mentioned last week. Universal was seeing dollar signs after a re-release of Frankenstein and the subsequent successes of Son of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man Returns. At that point, Universal looked to The Mummy as being the next franchise that they could build. While only costing about $84,000, The Mummy's Hand was a decent enough success to make another. And that's what we're going to be talking about here, and that is The Mummy's Tomb. Now, it's important to understand that 1941, the year before this was released, brought with it The Wolfman and the ascension of Lon Chaney Jr. as the new horror superstar at Universal after Boris Karloff left the monster, uh, the Frankenstein monster role behind, and Bela Lugosi not really being a regular monster movie player for Universal. When Chaney renewed his contract with Universal in 1942, he was moved into the role of Karis for The Mummy's Tomb and the rest of the series after this, after Western actor and stuntman Tom Tyler appeared in The Mummy's Hand. Um, Tom Tyler just really wasn't right for the types of horror stunts that Lon Chaney had proved to kind of pick up from his father. But it's said that Chaney's time as Karis, particularly in these first couple of outings as the mummy, were pretty awful. Um, The makeup process was long. It was arduous. It was incredibly uncomfortable. And it's said that Chaney had a flask somewhere under his costume that had a straw or a tube 
that would come up to his mouth where he would constantly sip vodka while shooting. It was pretty bad. Uh, the makeup is great, but it wasn't sustainable, even for a movie that is barely 60 minutes in length. Eventually, Jack Pierce, Universal's monster makeup man, had to create a mask in a later installment to give relief to Chaney. So, as this movie, The Mummy's Tomb, begins, there are a couple of things to bring up. First, this movie is one of the rare instances that, without a doubt, is a direct sequel to the previous entry in the series. Frankenstein is mostly tight to continuity, and most definitely Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are directly connected. Um, but as later sequels came along, it was a little uneven with exactly how the continuity connected from one movie to the next. But the very beginning of Dracula's Daughter is literally moments after the end of Dracula. But beyond that, you mostly have looser connections to the previous films in any given series. I suspect most of this is because not everyone had the chance to see the previous movie. And if you want people to feel like they're, they kind of know what's going on uh, if they show up to watch a monster movie, instead of asking them to be bogged down with continuity, it was a good way to, to kind of sell tickets. But anyway, this movie... Uh, you know, doesn't worry too much about continuity issues because it spends a not insignificant time recapping the previous movie. Kind of like how I spent a not insignificant time of this episode recapping the previous movie. And I also wanted to bring up the 30 months because this movie actually takes place 30 years after the events of the previous movie. Now, the High Priest of Karnak, played by George Zucco, uh, in both the previous movie and this current one, was indeed shot by Babe before Steve saved his future wife, Marta. But he's still alive. The bullet that Babe hit him with, uh, even though he shot him like three or four times, uh, pretty much missed all of his vital organs. But now, 30 years on, he's passing the job of High Priest and overseeing Karis to Mehmet Bey, played by Turan Bey. Uh, who was one of the very few actors of the era who actually played his nationality appropriately instead of hiring and making up a white actor to play a person of color. The high priest then sends Mehmet to America to exact revenge on those who stole the Princess Ananka's body um, and those thieves' heirs. Now, Mehmet awakens Karis, and he slowly marches toward his first victim, who happens to be Steve Banning. Yeah, our hero of the previous movie, uh, you know, does, you know, is only really in the first third or so of this movie. And if you don't count the 12 minutes of runtime used to retell the previous movie, he really only made it about 10 minutes into the new story, and he's killed. One of the other targets of the revenge plot will eventually be Steve's son, John, but Mehmet watches John and his girlfriend, Isabel, and starts to speak of concerns over temptations. This will be something that will carry over time and again in these mummy movies where the guy who's keeping track of Karis ultimately falls in love with a woman that he shouldn't have any business with. Kind of happened in the last movie, too. But the next day... Babe arrives in town to see John and give his con condolences to his good friend having passed away. 
And uh, Karis is sent after Babe. But after John tells Babe of the grayish, dusty markings on his father's neck, uh, his, you know, his father's friend realizes that this sounds pretty familiar. And at the Banning home, the maid is the next to fall victim to the mummy's throttling. Babe tells John two things. The gray markings on the victim's throats uh, is mold from a mummy, and he needs to leave town as soon as possible and get as far away as possible. But John refuses to leave. Now, Babe goes to the police to tell them that he knows a mummy is to blame for these killings, and they refuse to believe him. However, Mamet overhears Babe tell a reporter in the bar about Karis and all of the adventure that he and Steve Banning went on. And Mamet is uh, sent out, or, you know, and uh, Mamet sends out Karis again, and ultimately he finds Babe right in the streets, and Babe is killed. Again, the hero of the previous movie is dispatched relatively easily. Now it's the goofball comedic relief who now has a completely different personality in this movie, who is now killed very early on. Later, John and Isabel find a torn piece of linen uh, from Karis stuck on a bush near his house, and a college professor confirms that the strip of linen is indeed from a mummy and contains the same specimens of mold and myrrh that the victim's wounds possessed. The police finally accept that their killer is indeed a 3,000-year-old mummy named Karis. Mehmet sees John propose to Isabel, and he decides that he needs her for himself. He sends Karis to collect Isabel and bring her back to him. And Karis doesn't really want to follow the order, but eventually is forced to. He sneaks into her bedroom and kidnaps her. Meanwhile, the police and John are over at the, uh, at the Banning household and has the entire town gathered to hunt down the mummy and you know so here's Mehmet's big plan ultimately he's going to give some of the tana leaves drink that is used to reawaken Karis to Isabel and basically make her immortal now he's going to drink the same stuff too and then they're going to go back to Egypt and she'll give him a son or something and basically they will forever keep the the power as the high priest of of Karnak or whatever I, I guess that's his plan uh, but before he can really go through with that and before we can really see how this plan is going to actually work uh, the townspeople arrive with their torches and they seem pretty angry about everything that's going on and after John finds out where where Karis and Isabel are Mehmet pulls a gun with the intent of killing John but he shot dead, allowing the town to chase after Karis. Karis is trapped in the Banning home where he appears to perish in a fire. John and Isabel marry and all is happy ever after. But let's get to the three things that I like about the mummy's tomb. First up, I really do like that this is a predecessor to the, to the slasher film. This is something I never really thought about before watching Monster Madness by James Rolfe on Cinemassacre, where he compared the mummy films of the 80s to the slashers of the late 70s and 80s. It's true, Karis is a stalking threat who racks up a body count throughout his movies. Granted, he's not swinging around a weapon, but still, he very much fits the bill as a slasher character. 
it's very possible these movies had a distinct influence on people like Wes Craven or Sean Cunningham when they would later create the Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th movies. While Karis is most definitely a tad more classically supernatural than your Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, or Jason Voorhees, he's not that far off from those cre- from what we think those creatures are either. On a pure stalking killer level, this movie works for what we generally get enjoyment from in the more modern horror films. Second, I appreciate the turn away from the tone of The Mummy's Hand. I don't know what it was about 1940, but The Mummy's Hand and The Invisible Woman were both decidedly comedic in tone, or at the very least, uh, if not directly comedic, they were much, much lighter in tone. Was that a concern because of the Hayes Code or what they thought would bring in a larger audience? I'm not sure, but it's clear that after The Wolfman, the comedic stuff was mostly downplayed with a focus more on an actual monster angle with a side plot usually concerning romance. Um, It's a little formulaic from this point forward with not only the future Mummy movies, but the entirety of the Universal Monsters franchise. But deciding to shift away from the comedic sidekicks or the flat-out slap sticky antics, that's a good thing. Thirdly, one of the things about these Mummy movies that uh, is that these four that were released from 1940 to 1944, The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Tune, The Mummy's Ghost, and The Mummy's Curse, are, in total, only four hours and ten minutes in length. Yes, they were intended to play in double features with other Universal movies. The Mummy's Tomb played with Night Monster, which did feature Bela Lugosi. Either way, being that these are only an hour long, these make for perfect background movies for like Halloween parties or what have you. They don't require a bunch of attention. You can simply watch the mummy Karis stalking his victims and throttling them to death and enjoy it for what it is, an early version of a slasher movie, like I said. Now that wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. You can catch new episodes of Monster Mondays each Monday at filmseizure.com as well as catching new episodes of Film Seizure each Wednesday morning. Uh, Both of those, again, at FilmSeizure.com. But don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to Film Seizure to get both the Film Seizure podcast and Monster Mondays at your favorite podcast providers, as well as YouTube. You can also check out my website, BMovieAnima.com, to read new reviews every Friday morning. Next time, join me for the final entry in the Gilman saga with The Creature Walks Among Us. Until next week, stay spooky. Thank you.